politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, we the people, to the Conservative Review podcast here at Blaze Media on September 17th, Thursday, the 233rd anniversary of We the People, the creation, the completion, the signing of the Constitution was ratified almost two years later, September 17th, 1787, one of the greatest days in the history of mankind, that greatest governing document that had ever been drafted until that time and likely since then was completed. Where is that document 233 days later? Constitution Day could not come at a worse time, but a more needed time. Where we have lost sight of everything in that document, we have lost sight of the purpose of that document, we have lost sight of the role of government in our lives, the limitation of government, the rights that we have inherently that cannot be infringed upon for any reason. We're almost like a beaten wife, a battered wife that begins to convince herself that, well, you know, maybe I wasn't a good wife that day. Maybe I burnt the dinner that night. I had it coming. And then at some point, a friend of hers just kind of grabs her by the shoulder and looks her in the eye and says, this is not okay. You are not to be treated that way. You mustn't be treated that way. What he is doing is wrong and evil, and it's got to stop. And you got to evacuate from the situation. Today should be a reminder that we have that right. We have that document in our hand, that social contract that this country was founded upon. It is our document. It's of no private person or government interpretation it stands forever and means forever the same thing for it stands for the same things it meant on that fateful day the end of that hot humid summer in the stifling philadelphia hall and we need to resolve to fight back and we need to recognize recognize that we are confronted with a worse degree of tyranny than they were dealing with from King George. This is not about some sort of disagreement over how to view a virus, over data, over, you know, maybe perhaps naive or they're a little bit too zealous, a little bit too careful. Nope. Some of the stories we're going to show later today, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of them already, More and more, we're seeing they know what we know. They are purposely manipulating the data, purposely setting benchmarks and metrics that are impossible to meet because they're essentially case or hospitalization or illness levels of not just even the flu season, but but all the time. Because it is about all the time. It is about controlling our lives indefinitely. It is about a new normal. And I want people to understand because sometimes people forget They get so brainwashed, so into this new normal. Yes, we deserve this. Yes, we need government to take care of us. No, this is not normal. This is not a new normal. There is only one normal. 
as it relates to just governance, and that is the normal set up in our Constitution. That the starting point is we have rights. They don't come from government. They don't come from government. We give the government the power, and it's only the power we give them. Anything else is out of bounds. It's a narrow lane that they must travel in. In many ways, it's a pretty magnanimous moment, I'd say, if you look at the convergence of two great anniversaries. If you think about it, you know, 233 is not a big number, but it comes in the same week that we're celebrating, if you've heard about it. I worked on this for my homeschooling project for, with my oldest son, learning about the settlement of the continent. This is the 400th anniversary of the Plymouth Voyage, the Mayflower, Brewster, Bradford, the Pilgrims, Separatists, as well as some adventurous and traders, traders with a D, <laughs> commerce, uh, discovering the new continent, the first major successful settlement. And on that ship, before they landed, they drafted the Mayflower Compact. Again, it's an understanding. When you start a society, it has to be, there are terms of governance agreed upon by the people that are done because it's necessary to prevent from invasion. Certain internal order you do need. You can't have no government. And that was really before the Constitution, the first social contract of a democratic representative body that was set up. Now, what was so remarkable about the Constitution itself, about 157 years later, is that it was set up for an entire nation. You know, this was a tiny area where everyone knew each other, handful of families, really. So, you know, it was kind of, you just go with the flow. You, your, your monolithic and your religious beliefs, your political beliefs, your goals. How do you set up a government for a large nation? And that, that was truly the vexing problem of the time that really speaks to the miraculous nature of how they got done what they did in that period of time, just a couple months over a hot summer in Philadelphia. It, you know, if you were a betting man, you would say it was going to fall apart. Different states, different interests. In those days, most people didn't travel outside of 15, 20 miles. So if you're in South Carolina, you have as much to do with people in, in Massachusetts as you do with people in Europe. And how do you, th that, that was the enigma. How do you empower a government to limit it and protect liberty at the same time? You get rid of King George, that's fine. But we understood we needed some government because, you know, again, you could have anarchy internally, you could have invasion externally. There are certain things you do need with a nation state uniform, measurements and currency, certain public. Um, modes of transportation, commerce. 
even in, in, in its most basic element, you need some sort of a nation state. And that was very difficult. They knew the people had to have input. The power had to flow directly from the people. But how do you set that up? And that's very complicated. But I want to start off today with a two-minute clip from Ronald Reagan that I think really brings out the point of the Constitution in dramatic fashion. Very profound yet simple point. At the same time, he made in 1987, this was not at the bicentennial celebration. It was the 200th anniversary of the Constitution 33 years ago. But at, early on in the year, so it wasn't in September, this was a speech he gave at the end of January during the State of the Union address, the annual State of the Union address. And he brought up a very profound point. I want you guys to take a listen right here. I've read the constitutions of a number of countries, including the Soviet Unions. Now, some people are surprised to hear that they have a constitution, and it even supposedly grants a number of uh, freedoms to its people. Many countries have written into their constitution provisions for freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. But if this is true, why is the Constitution of the United States so exceptional? Well, the difference is so small that it almost escapes you, but it's so great, it tells you the whole story in just three words. We, the people. In those other constitutions, the government tells the people of those countries what they're allowed to do. In our constitution, we, the people, tell the government what it can do, and it can do only those things listed in that document and no others. Virtually every other revolution in history has just exchanged one set of rulers for another set of rulers. Our revolution is the first to say the people are the masters and government is their servant. You young people out there, don't ever forget that. Someday, you could be in this room, but wherever you are, America is depending on you to reach your highest and be your best, because here in America, we the people are in charge. So Reagan had, had this great observation of, you know, you look at the Soviet Union, you look at other countries. I know Ruth Bader Ginsburg is very fond of uh, reading from foreign constitutions and extolling their supposed virtues. And, and they'll have a lot of flowery language about how great people are and we're going to, you know, the people are going to be free, the people are going to be prosperous, the people are going to be great. But as we know, it's bull. It's the definition of freedom and greatness and prosperity as laid out by a governing elite that's an oligarchy. See, what is free is what we say is free. What's good is what we say is good. There are no fixed truths. There are no natural rights given by God. The beauty of the American system is it was set up bottom up. The power the government gets is only 
what the people give it, as opposed to the rights the people get are only the rights the government gives them. Because they give them those rights, all right, but they take them away in the same breath, so they don't really have them. By the way, just so you know, this is why, and I'm a big fan of this, I think that was the better approach, and I think in the long run it actually hurt us. James Madison and several others were against the concept of a Bill of Rights. Because the implication would be not only that these are the only rights you have, but that even those rights come from government. Oh, we're recognizing you have the right to assemble, the right to uh, uh, religion, against uh, search and seizure, double jeopardy, the right to bear arms. No. Those were pre-existing natural rights that were given by God, that were recognized by the first settlers at Plymouth 157 years ago, um, were recognized by the colonial governments in the ensuing decades as they were created, and then throughout the 1700s. Um, already, Maryland's, I think Maryland had really the first Declaration of Rights I believe in 1638, 1639, there were two different documents there. Um, kind of gets into a heated debate over what, you know, what was the first Bill of Rights. But they, they were recognized before the creation of the national government. So it was understood that we have our freedom. The tough thing was recognizing how to set it up. How do you set it up in a way that it doesn't come full circle and the government starts infringing upon those rights again. That was the big enigma. And, and, and it's, it's easier said than done. Even if you all agree, certainly the fact that back then already you had factionalism and geographic interests and things like that. And by golly, they, they could have never envisioned such a, you know, heterogeneous uh, population as we have today. You know, they were all pretty much of the same stock, give or take. Uh, you had some German and French immigrants here and there, a couple others, but pretty much they all had the same heritage. And yet still you had a diverging interests. Obviously, slavery loomed large even then. But other competing economic interests, small states, large states, that was the big rub, the Connecticut plan, the Virginia plan, compromise this was all almost divinely inspired divine providence led to the right outcome the best outcome you can get but the important thing is that we at least recognize the, the these are our rights you can't rule over us that is not okay to go for six months and then even after six months say this is indefinite, a new normal with nobody in a hospital. Not that they had such draconian powers even if you had such a significant epidemic, but the notion that you could just cry public health and do anything you want for any period of time without showing your work, without having a legislative debate. And we have to accept that. In the backdrop of all this, we have all the news with the masks. How openly they're now saying, shut up. Google it. There's a lot of articles, shut up and mask up. 
At least they admit it. That's what it is. It's a sign. Nothing to do with public health, as we've noted. It spread everywhere where they had it. Doesn't work. Never did. Was warned against by our own public officials that are now saying it's the greatest thing greater than a vaccine. As Redfield said, CDC director, and the most retarded statement ever said, probably on this entire ordeal. It's all about shutting us up. You are subjects. You are not we the people. We rule over you. That window is closing for us to get it back. Just recognize everything we always kind of read about, warned about, you know, one day we're going to have tyranny here. And look, we had soft tyranny to a certain extent in certain spheres of our life. But, you know, we never really believed in our lifetime we would see this. They have sunk their teeth into this issue. They are not going to unsink them. They are not going to let go unless we pry it loose. Everything they ever wanted to do with things like global warming, they have succeeded with, with, with nothing more than a whimper. I mean, they're taking a look and they're seeing that, look, I mean, the more you cry public health and the more you show you're doing something as government, as a government leader to uh, redress it, your numbers go up. I mean, you look, Ron DeSantis' approval numbers are in the toilet. Um, all the jerk-off governors, Lockdown Larry and DeWine and Cuomo and these guys are riding high because we have not created a competing narrative. But the first step is to show this is not okay. You know, we could talk about, well, you know, was the supper really burnt? Did you really fail your husband in this situation? Did you not provide whatever you were supposed to do as, as a wife? We could debate that, study it, and get into it. But the first understanding is to go back to that original compact of that marriage, just to continue our analogy, which is somewhat of a compact in itself, a union between a husband and a wife, you cannot violate those terms of the union. Right? It is not okay for a husband to punch his wife. Right? That's just not okay under any circumstance. I mean, unless she herself is sadistic and you know, attacking him with, with a knife or something or whatever, you know, but I'm just saying under normal circumstances that, that is not okay. So we, we don't even need to get into the, the facts on the ground. Yeah, no. What are you doing? What did you do? Did, did you upset him? And it's a similar thing here. We can go through the facts on the ground and we do it every day with the virus, but we must never forget as justice Jackson told us, in the Youngstown case in 1948, there is no emergency exception to governmental powers. And the flip side of that coin is citizen rights, natural rights, unalienable God-given rights in the Constitution. Okay, that, that is, there is no exception other than one habeas corpus during a time of rebellion, which as we joke around, we actually do have a rebellion, and that's the one thing we actually won't do, which would be justified under the Constitution. Not that we even need to do that, but, you know, because you don't have to suspend habeas corpus to do to, to properly arrest and mete out justice, but we're not even doing that. <clears throat> 
But anyway, that's that's what the Constitution was. The overwhelming majority of Americans don't even know what we're celebrating today. If I were Trump, I would make a push. I mean, it would be nice to replace Labor Day, but that's never going to fly. But at least add people like more holidays. Shut the government down. You know what? Why not? September 17th of every year. 39 delegates from 12 states stuck in a room. They almost came to blows a couple times. They hated each other. Worked out the document. (laughs) Reflecting back on this years later, James Madison wrote in his notes, There never was an assembly of men charged with a great and arduous trust who are more pure in their motives or more exclusively or anxiously devoted to the object committed to them than were the members of the Federal Convention of 1787 to the object of proposing and devising a constitutional system which would best secure the permanent liberty and happiness of the country. And again, you know, it wasn't all... Unicorns and candy. It was pretty rough and tumble. But the system we adopted had three entities. The people, the states, and the federal union. Misunderstanding the rightful powers of any one of those branches is the reason for our existing constitutional crisis. They were clear in their intent to assign the federal government only enumerated powers dealing primarily with national defense, external affairs, subject matter that required uniformity, such as naturalization, currency, interstate trade. All other powers were vested in the states, but except for issues affecting natural and unalienable rights that were left to the people as laid out in the Declaration of Independence. So let's be clear... This notion that, oh, well, the Bill of Rights only applies to the federal government, not the states. The states could do whatever you want. The states had their own bills of rights since the settling of the continent, dating back to the Mayflower Compact. So the notion that you could just you know lock someone up, beat someone up, cover their mouths, there are certain human rights that are so obvious that... You know, a state doesn't have power over that. That's like with, you know, roads, bridges, canals. That was the issue back then. So whether the federal government has any power, many of them believe they didn't have the power. It should have been left to the states, things like that. Like the creation of I-40 out of where I live, out of Baltimore, the national highway. It's a big controversy at the founding of our country. It was those type of things, okay? It wasn't like... Hey, you can't open a business. Hey, you can't pray in church. Hey, I think you're you're a danger. Your existence um, indefinitely, even if you don't have symptoms of any disease, you have to be quarantined. You have to wear a mask. No, that that, that is not okay. And that was the system we adopted. And... Madison recognized in Federalist 47 the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one, few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced 
the very definition of tyranny. And as we said, this was really the feature of the system. The, the tough thing was finding the exact balance. The checks were obvious. You have a check that was obvious, even with elections. Well, just elect one branch. Well, it's, it's not a, you know, it's not despotism. It's not King George. You're having elections, right? No, it was understood that you had to diversify it so there would be redress for the people. If, if the executive branch is acting crazy, the other two could step in. But likewise, if the judiciary is acting crazy, the other ones could step in as well. It goes in a circle. And again, obviously, those who believe in judicial supremacy are literally undermining the very purpose of this constitutional structure. So it was very hard to see. You know, At first, they had a unicameral conception of Congress, one branch, not instead of the House and the Senate. It had veto power over the states. And then the veto on Congress was the judiciary and the executive together. We spoke about that before. And then they eventually worked out the sausage and carved out the system we have today. And um, that's, that's where we are. What is a constitution? Supreme Court Justice William Patterson, one of the first justices from New Jersey, he wrote this in 1795. What is a constitution? It is the form of government delineated by the mighty hand of the people in which certain first principles of fundamental law are established. The constitution is certain and fixed. It contains the permanent will of the people and is the supreme law of the land. It is paramount to the power of the legislature and can be revoked or altered only by the authority that made it. And again, that means by the people through the process originally laid out in that first compact. And we have two ways, of course, of amending the Constitution that mirror each other, but start, you know, one starts with the states, one starts with Congress. Article 5 but the notion that we could evolve on rights. Nope. Don't ever, ever forget your heritage. Don't forget that this Constitution speaks permanently to us the way it did. Those people in and outside that convention hall in September of 1787. What we have today is stolen sovereignty. The sovereignty expressed, expressed in that document, that sovereignty has been totally abrogated. Individual sovereignty, state sovereignty, and national sovereignty. We have no sovereignty as a nation from foreign invaders. They, they get rights. They get to be counted in the census. States don't have sovereignty to set personal order. But then at the same time, evidently states have the power to infringe upon individual sovereignty. There is no limit to what they could do to us. Now, ultimately, ultimately, the answer to this problem lies in the document of that original day that we celebrate. You see, Madison, the big thing that drove him the entire time was the recognition that 
you know what? Having more states and more localities is not a bug. It's a feature. It might create problems for unity and and create sticky points for the federal government and its creation, but he understood it was actually less likely to have centralized tyranny when you have more factions rather than fewer factions. Factions aren't great, but if you're going to have them, it's actually better to have more than just two. Right? And that's what he wrote in one of the, you know, most foundational writings to understanding our system, Federalist 10, quote, you take in a greater variety of parties and interests, you make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens. You know, and this is the thing. You know, if we have Joe Biden as president, and truth truth be told, with Redfield and Fauci and all these guys, I mean, every other day the Trump administration is still kind of like this, you have a federal tyranny of at one level, well, there's nothing you can do. You convince a majority of the people to go along with, hey, you know, to save your life, you have to destroy other people. Where do those people turn to get their rights back? But the good news is we're seeing really the federal government actually doesn't do much here. I mean, they have stupid guidance that pours fuel on the fire. But at the end of the day, We have seen over and over again that if your county government is willing to push back, you will have freedom. And that really is where this lies. When you look at the corona fascism, the corona control cult, the communist COVIDs that we're up against, it's really a fight of 3,200 powers. And it's not great having 3,200 dictators, but it's better than one. Whoever is in charge of the White House. And and again, this is really what we need to do. We need to fulfill that. I mean, look, I'm not going to tell you Madison envisioned we'd be this insane as a people. But however bad it would get, they were concerned about tyranny Lurking, not so much in terms of King George, but as Jefferson and Madison talked about a lot in elective despotism where you have elections, but you wind up having this uh, small elite that can manipulate and convince a majority of people to go along with tyranny, and then everyone else is screwed. They sowed the seeds for freedom and liberty by creating the system they did. We still have unique county and state governments. We need to utilize them to the fullest. So that's basically just my Constitution Day message here. I want to transition that into the discussion of what what is it we're faced with. And if you guys had any inkling that this is going to go away on your own, that somehow, oh, this is just maybe a disagreement over a metric, over... Where we are, no, no, no. Let me give you several stories. Number one, we already mentioned yesterday, Robert Redfield said during a Senate hearing that a mask is better than a vaccine. It's the greatest protection that I have. So first of all, it's an admission that masks, now he's saying they they do help you. Before it was like, no, it's only on the perpetrator. 
not on the receiver. Well, now he's admitting it is on the receiver. So why do I have to wear a mask then? Oh, well, you're affecting others. Well, no, those others could wear a mask. And if they're not, then they're just as stupid as me, right? But number two, this man is now saying that this is better than a vaccine. So here we are, tons of cases everywhere. Mind you, it's a cold. It's not a problem, but they think it's a big problem. And they're saying what we've had in place for months with mask mandates is better than a vaccine. So I guess that's an admission that having a vaccine is going to be worse than today. What it really is, is code language for even when there is a vaccine, we will be doing this again and again forever. That's the real takeaway from Redfield's testimony. Now, I know Trump did rebuke him. But again, how much longer are these people allowed to remain in office? Literally espousing Joe Biden's message with more enthusiasm than Joe Biden espouses. But they're speaking on behalf of the Trump administration. That's got to end. But folks, watch for that. Why do you think he went as far as to compare it to that? This is better than a vaccine. It sounds insane. It sounds utterly insane. Why would he say something like that? That is so transparently absurd. Well, the answer is because they want to ensure that you know as they feel we're getting closer to a vaccine. We'll see. I don't know. We can't We can't allow this to end. You see what sounded like, oh, such a concern for human life. It's about Corona. If we could only end it. Oh, we need a vaccine. Actually, it didn't start that way. It was all about the 15 days to just slow the hospitalizations. But we allowed the goalpost to grow and grow and grow all the way to, you know what? We're shutting down until there's a vaccine. Well, now that we allowed that to go without even a whimper and a protest, now they're saying even if there is a vaccine, this is the new normal. This is what we do. This is better. This is great. It will prevent you from getting anything. You always have the flu, right? Even without the flu, you always have other things. And it could always come back, so you have to prevent it from coming back. So therefore, you're going to have to wear it forever. Pay no attention, of course, to Israel, India, Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Hawaii, California, Miami, Peru, Philippines, and everywhere else where they had a mask mandate in place before they had barely any cases. And then it spread months later with full compliance in large numbers. Folks, it is very chilling. But this mask thing is not a means to an end. It's not like, okay, we disagree. You think it helps. I think it doesn't help. No, no, no. Corona could be eradicated tomorrow. You could have a vaccine tomorrow. They will continue it. Because this is the end game. They got you. They always wanted this. They never dreamt that they'd be this successful in compliance. And they got it. They will not give it up. Because this is the main course. This is the point. I always noted from day one, it made no sense to me that, you know, like, let's say you genuinely believe some of this stuff works. 
and genuinely it's not about control, it's about public health and safety or genuinely concerned, the attitude would have been different. It would have been more humility. Like if you're a county or state official, you would have come before the people and say, look, we know it's a really disruptive thing to ask you all to wear masks. We think it might help. Let's go for two weeks, two-week mandate. In the meantime, we're going to study it. We're going to hold legislative hearings. We're going to have the legislature in session. We're going to bring down experts to debate and discuss this. We're going to get some legislation in place, and we'll see what happens. It's with a heavy heart. I understand. But instead, it was like, you better do this. Shut up. Wear it. Here's what we're doing. No end to it. You do as I say. I was like, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like someone who just simply maybe is misguided and thinks it might work and is concerned about public health. That is a tyrant a hundred times worse than King George. That is a man who is out of control and it will never end. And folks, today it was exposed in front of all of our eyes for everyone to see in Nashville. Kudos to Fox 17, the local Fox affiliate. You know, a lot of local Fox affiliates are much better than the the national one. And they report out of Nashville, they got a copy of emails between the health department and the mayor's office, Mayor John Cooper of Nashville, that show that they knew that the cases among bars and restaurants, which seem to be the biggest target of the corona cult, aside from churches, were remarkably low. And they were debating over how to keep that news. You you would think, like, look, if, if it's a public health concern, so, okay, you want people to know the concerns, but certainly if there's good news, hey, guys, cases are low, we're doing good. Why, why would you always seek to stifle good news and only report bad news, exaggerate, even lie to get bad news out of good news? Why would you do that if this was a genuine drive to just worry about public safety and not about control well the answer is it is about control and now we see it leslie waller from the health department in nashville asked in an email to mayor john cooper senior advisor benjamin eagles quote this isn't going to be publicly released right just info for the mayor's office meaning that they only had 22 traced cases and even those trace tracing is bs but trace cases back to bars and restaurants in the um Lower Broadway uh, area. Quote, correct, not for public consumption, replies senior advisor Benjamin Eagles. Well, several weeks later, when a local reporter inquired, like, hey, like, what's the deal with the restaurants? Why are, we, why are they still co- closed? Like, where are the cases? So health department official Brian Todd asked five health department officials on an email chain how he should respond. One of them, who his name is blocked off in the email, says, my two cents, we have certainly refused to give counts per bar because those numbers are low per site. They refuse to put out the information to the public because the numbers are too low. I want you to let that seep in for a minute because what this demonstrates is not just for this metric, but for every metric and not just for Nashville, but everywhere else. You cannot believe a single thing you're hearing Do you trust the mask studies coming out after years of showing it doesn't work suddenly? Oh, they do work? Really? We are being, they are lying and obfuscating to keep the panic going. 
That's the reality. Then there's a companion piece done by reporter Stacey Case for Fox 17 looking into another metric. So there was cases among bars and restaurants in order for them to open, but then there's hospitalizations. And they said that they create a metric that hospitalizations, hospital bed usage has to be below 80%. In other words, you have to have at least 20% free beds. This does not include surge space, I believe. Now, 80% sounds like a high number, but as all of you know by now, um, even not during the flu season, just all year round, that, that's the standard level um, without surge capacity because otherwise it's not cost effective. I mean, you can't run a hospital with uh, you know active beds and only 20% of the active rooms that are being cared for are, are occupied. So our buddies at Nashville for Rational COVID Policy, we might have on one of these guests tomorrow, has a beautiful chart out showing how basically you can never meet this metric. You know why? They barely have anyone in the hospital. They have 100 people in the hospital for COVID now. And mind you, most of those cases are going to be very light. It was never more than 210. They never had a hospital problem. They never came close to having a hospital problem. In fact, for much of this, they had the opposite problem. They had to furlough people. It's a flat line. They always had a flat curve of hospitalizations. They never had a problem. But nonetheless, they hover right at that 80 to 83% mark. Because the non-COVID hospitalizations alone, at any given time, account for either just under the benchmark, at the benchmark, or over it. So what it basically means is that every day of the flu season, you would be over the benchmark. Now, and I'm not talking about the flu with COVID. I'm talking about if COVID is abolished, is eradicated tomorrow, the flu alone would take you over. And then the majority of non-flu times also you'd be over. A couple of weeks, maybe here or there, you could be under. It's a benchmark that is designed that you can never meet. And if you notice, that's what we've been talking about recently. They're setting benchmarks that are impossible. It's basically you can't have any COVID. But not like serious COVID, even light COVID. But then also, if you peer into it, it's not even just COVID. And now they're talking about the flu. And now, really, they're just saying, this is the new normal. And by the way, Nashville, I know, is kind of blue, but Tennessee is a red state. What about the governor? Well, he's a schmuck like everyone else. Why isn't he clamping down on this? Well, it's no different from what we see in Indiana. Okay? Indiana. Face masks are just a fact of life now, says Governor Eric Holcomb, Indiana Republican governor. Who's your, this is WNWI.com. Who's yours better learn to love their face mask because the state directed to wear a mouth and nose covering in places where social distancing is not possible will likely be in place for months to come. Months to come. Okay? Holcomb said, I don't want that lost on anyone. What we are doing is working. It's allowing us to not just stay open and continue to reopen, but to continue to be safe. Kudos to Hoosiers who have been masking up 
and who have been physically distancing themselves. I feel good about the direction that we're heading. If you rewind the tape and look back seven days or 14 days or 30, 30 days, we weren't in this position. So here's the game they play. Again, the virus never stays forever. It saturates for six to eight weeks and it moves on because you reach that de facto um, herd immunity level. It was never bad there, but even that so-called uptick doesn't last forever. But then they get to say, look, the mask worked. So in other words, all the places where they had nothing and then a mass mandate and then months later it surges, you don't say the mask didn't work. But where you didn't have it and it kind of comes just because it was going to come and it ends because it's going to end, oh, the mask mandate made it end. Look at this brainwashing. You know, I wear a mask every day, all day. I'm in a lot of different meetings. And I may, may not like every second that I'm wearing it, but I know it's working. And I know I'm contributing to staying open. See, the beauty is how they had a shutdown, a full shutdown. And then they're like, well, isn't this better than a shutdown? So the new benchmark is not freedom. It's full shutdown. So anything that's not a full shutdown, you should be happy with. This is sick. We warned about this. Hoosiers have to stand up. The county governments... It's got to start with the bastard Republican governors and spread from there. You mask up to stay open. If you care about Main Street, if you care about the economy, you only have to look around to some other places that are doing the opposite and closing down. I don't like them either, but it's just a fact of life right now. Listen to that. Folks, we have to remember our own roots. We have to go back to Benjamin Franklin. In that tough summer, things were really bad. And it looked like it was going to fall apart. I forget which day this was in July, where it almost fell apart. They almost came to blows over the state representation issue. <clears throat> Benjamin Franklin rises. One of the few times he rises to speak is kind of like an elder statesman. Mr. President, addressing George Washington, of course. This is from Madison's journal. The small progress we have made after four or five weeks, close attendance and continual reasonings with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many nays and nays, is methinks a melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. <clears throat> we indeed seem to feel our own want of political wisdom. Some we have been running about in search of it. We have gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different forms of these republics which, have, which having been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution now no longer exist. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe but find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not Heathrow once thought of humbly applying 
to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understandings. In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard. They were graciously answered. All of us who are engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable that an empire can rise without his aid. Or, I'm sorry, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain and build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded and we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance, despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of the city be requested to officiate in that service. And Roger Sherman from Connecticut seconded his motion and they engaged in prayer. And that's what we need to do. We need to pray for guidance. Countries aren't built without God's providence. They aren't destroyed without his providence. And if we are to have a chance, we have to appeal to the great creator under my faith. And two days from now, we will stand at the beginning of the lunar moon year. I mean, the lunar year, the the new year. where it is our biblical belief that everything that occurs that year at a personal and national level and international level is decided by God, now is a time of prayer. To pray that we are given some sort of guidance, some sort of light in this darkness. To see that sunrise that Benjamin Franklin saw over George Washington's chair and not that sunset. But that first requires us to understand both the spiritual and intellectual lessons of that original document and to recognize that this is not a new normal. There is only one normal. We must not obey. We must not acquiesce. Never, never, never shall we surrender. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.